From our earliest learning, we've been asking why questions. Why does the sun come up each day? Why do we have to brush our teeth? Why do we need to wear seatbelts? Why do we even celebrate Christmas? Why should we set time aside each year to remember that Jesus Christ was born? God sent Jesus to us into humble beginnings. He brought with him a design for peace, hope, love and forever into our world. Why Christmas? God planned it so we could enter in and share gladness and joy this Christmas. Well, good morning again all. Karen, we love you as we love Tony. And together we are sad. And we want to embrace you. We want to say that... Uh, you are so very, very valued, along with family, Sue, Vivian, the children. We send our prayers on your behalf that will comfort you at this time. Thanks for your courage, your witness, and your love of the Lord Jesus that gives us perspective. Amen. We're continuing in our series in Luke chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, could you open it there? Love it if you were to follow through with something on at eye level that you can focus on because the one thing that I'm kind of fixed on is that uh, you don't listen to me or anyone else who stands up here and just assumes that what they're saying is true, but that you can prove it because your eyes see it in the word of God, which is living and transforming. Amen. And we've been looking at the whys of Christmas. We considered, first of all, why Christmas and why Bethlehem in particular, why shepherds last week. And through it all, we've seen the very clear plan of God for the first Christmas. Uh, the truth is, there's a lot of uh, very worthwhile why questions around the whole Christmas season and the reason for Christmas. I don't understand all the ways and the things of God, but I do know and believe God has a purpose for everything that he chooses to do. There are no mistakes in the kingdom of God. So today our focus will mostly be around Mary and Joseph. Joseph forms part of the Christmas narrative, part of God's focus, as he's a very important part of the ordered and perfect plan of God, including Jesus' parenting. In God's proclamation, his desire in God's plan, Jesus was meant to grow up 
as a human in a normal family. And so Joseph plays his part and he plays it so well. Our uh, thinking today is mostly around character and geography. So who we are and our response, our character, who we are in Christ and our response, and then because the Christmas narrative leads us so much into the reality of what was going on in Israel before Jesus came, during his life and after, the reality of where we live also has purpose. So geography has purpose. God knows where we live and uh, very regular, well, all the time, he will call us, firstly, according to our character, but also in association with where he has placed us. So our character and geography is really very much a part of the purpose and plan of God. So to start off, why did God choose Mary? And from the little we know, a poor young peasant girl from the back country of Israel, basically, why Mary and why the virgin birth? All those questions have answers. And I believe we want to get under the skin of this story to once again see the hand and the provision of God in the first Christmas as he unfolded his plan for the coming of the Messiah. So uh, if you have that Bible open, let's go to Luke chapter 1 and we're picking it up in verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth a town in the Galilee, to the virgin, a virgin, pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary because you have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. So much in that, which we'll pick up as we go through today. So much, a birth to a son and you will call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Nobody wants to be average or ordinary. It's not our goal. The truth is that we want our lives to count for something. Human nature is an interesting study. Anthropology. Who are we and our responses? Our obedience, our attitude, 
speaks heavily into how God can use us for his glory. I'm convinced that I will never be smart enough to get this sorted. I feel like Mary would have grown up with some aspirations of what she might do in life. I don't believe that becoming the mother of the saviour of the world got a look in in the early part of her life. I don't think she grew up with that aspiration. And I want to draw a parallel right there that many of us in our foundational years grow up and we all have aspirations of some kind. And then life happens and we begin to discover what our purpose really is. In this Christmas story, we find God has a plan that brings Joseph and Mary together for purpose. I didn't have any plans whatsoever to become a pastor. I thought that at some time I might go off to Bible college to learn and to grow and to be able to function uh, well with the knowledge of the scripture. Public speaking was a fear like no other for me. Anybody in the room remember lecturettes? No way known. I'll take a fail every day of the week before I stand up in front of the class and actually speak a story. No way. In my wedding, uh, Trace and I somewhere, buried I hope, have an audio where Gary says, I take you, Tracy, when? Oh, well, not yet. To be. I just couldn't speak in front of anybody. And I was 20. And then my senior pastor thinks it's a good idea that I become the captain of the boys' brigade. And, and when we uh, chatted about that, he said, you know, you, you won't have to do anything, you just lead. Well, that was funny. Then he invites the mayor and a whole bunch of politicians to come to a, like a passing out parade at the end of the year where we'd give out all the badges and I've got to present a speech in front of all these dignitaries. You see, we don't know what God's plan is until we, until we start living in it. Did you get that? Sometimes we don't know the plan of God until we wake up in the morning and we start doing our day and we see that God has purposed us for whatever it is that he had planned for us to do in Jesus' name. So the plan is pretty hard to see until we're in it. Mary and Joseph didn't know God's plan for them until it was revealed to them and they started living it. Their character then was revealed and is so revealed today. Not much has changed, right? No, none of that has changed. 
God has a plan for each of us and generally speaking, we don't know what that plan is until we are living it. Why Joseph and Mary? But also, I want to say geography, why Nazareth? Because God has a way of joining his dots together. Nazareth, for instance, is a town which is the part of a major plan of God for Jesus. Massive. And uh, I'll just spend a few minutes unravelling that a little bit this morning because I, I think we... We think about Bethlehem so much in the Christmas narrative, but the Gabriel, the angel, came to them in Nazareth. I've been there a couple of times. And you drive in and you drive out. It's kind of out of the way. It's a back country of Israel town. I'm thinking a little bit like Paluma. You know, I haven't actually been to Paluma yet. Why? Because you've got to have a good reason to go there. We've been up to Little Creek and uh, we've looked at the road, we've walked over that bridge and we've, you know, done the rock pool thing and then we said, well, another day we'll keep pushing up that road and we'll go to Paluma. Well, we haven't got back there yet. It's on the wish list. It'll happen. But you've got to have a reason to go there. Nazareth was like that back in the day. Nothing out of the ordinary happens. Just nice to visit. And Nazareth is kind of like that. Pretty normal town. Not connected by main roads. It is today because of its religious significance. But back in Jesus' time, you would have had a, a reason to go there. So it's off the main trade routes, not far away, but just off the main trade routes during Jesus' time. Accessible easily if you wanted to go there. And most people would have bypassed it and headed straight to the Galilee. Now it's known today uh, for the venue of the Nazareth village. I think we've got some pictures. This was developed by Christians. In fact, a, a number of the people of the, my re most recent church down in Melbourne were part of a construction team uh, that were putting this together, which I found out uh, the first time I went to Israel. People are saying, oh, go, make sure you go to Nazareth Village. And I'm like, why? Well, we made the fence and we made the, that yard where, where they put the cattle and stuff. And I'm like, okay, we'll do that. A few hundred people at most probably lived in Nazareth during Jesus' childhood. Its current population is 84,500. It was an ordinary or an average village in the region of Galilee and nothing was recorded to even recognise its existence until AD 70. It wasn't known for anything particularly, so not famous, wasn't really an important place at all, as I said, the major trade routes missed going directly through Nazareth. It's about 130k north of Jerusalem. It's a good walk, therefore, and some estimate three days if you're a really, really solid walker and, and you're doing it for purpose. 
Uh, most people would take at least a week to get down to Jerusalem or up actually geographically south of but geographically up to Jerusalem through which you go Jericho. You walk through Jericho on the way up to Jerusalem and most commonly uh, you'd take the wadi track because that doesn't take you too far away from water. Pretty decent journey for anyone. You can almost see it from Mount Abel, which looks down on Capernaum. And uh, if you look back, you get to the reverse side and you look back, you can see uh, Magadha, but also uh, Nazareth, way in the distance. And a similar distance from the Mediterranean um, as well. So it's kind of landlocked and in the middle of the western part of Israel. So we're looking down at Capernaum there in the larger photo. You know what I want to say? A strategically safe and quiet place to grow up. There you go. Quiet town. Beautiful place to grow up. Like it's perfectly planned and ordered for the place where Jesus would be protected while he learnt the scriptures and developed in his humanity. God is so very good at being God. A very low influence from the outside world. John 1 and 46 says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And I won't belittle any biblical character. We shouldn't belittle anybody. But I have to say there's nothing out of the ordinary about Mary. Pretty regular young lady. Nothing special about her. Even her name is quite normal for the day. How many Marys do we see in the New Testament, right? But I've got her as a Bible hero. What an amazing character. And Joseph alongside of her. What an amazing character. Because their automatic obedience to the call of God through the angel Gabriel is so incredible. Spontaneous, you have to say, yeah? It's not like they grew up planning for this. But when they were called into the will of God, they responded. And so the Christmas narrative doesn't leave them out. So very important that their response made the rest possible. And I want to draw that parallel that as God calls us, our response brings his will into being if in fact we respond yes Count me in, God. Mary is a Paul girl. She's engaged to be married to a poor man. Joseph Joseph is a craftsman. Probably that mostly refers to carpentry. The word we translate carpenter is tectons. In the Greek, 
It actually means builder, creator of structures. And Joseph may have worked in stone as well. Because Nazareth and the surrounds is full of rock and stone. It's really hilly country. And the area around Nazareth has probably got more rocks and stones than trees and timber. So as you tour Nazareth, you'll visit the precipice. It gives you a panoramic view of a lot of the Old Testament history. This is where a lot of the conflicts and battles occurred. It looks down where so many wars happened. And today, the most fertile country, perhaps anywhere. Amazing crop country. You've got Nazareth in the north, Mount Tabor to the east, Mount Gilboa in the south and Mount Carmel on the western boundary. Awesome farming. Has a violent history though. The wife of King Ahab, Jezebel, died there. Uh, King Ahab's sons died there. Uh, Jezreel was the place of so many biblical battles. Deborah's victory in Judges 4, the Israelites' victory over the Midianites and the Amalekites in Judges 6 and, and 8, Saul and Jonathan's defeat at the hand of the Philistines in 1 Samuel, um, Egypt's victory over King Josiah in 2 Kings. The Jezreel Valley is now beautiful farmland. God obviously willed it that way. There's wheat and cotton and corn and sunflowers, herds of sheep, cattle. It's called the Valley of Megiddo these days. And some believe it may be the scene of the Battle of Armageddon. You can stand on the mountain that's named Precipice and look as that photo reveals across the Megiddo Valley. But right behind you, in fact, just down the street is Nazareth, totally protected and serene in the time of Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? God's plan in a region of conflict and yet also where Jesus would grow up in the backdrop of all those historical conflicts where nations rose up against Israel. You look at that view and you turn around and walk down the street and you're in the place where Jesus grew up. Interesting also that on this very mountain, on the southern side of Nazareth, just two kilometres, we see Luke 4. And this is the... the, the the very place that's described, they got up, drove him, Jesus, out of the town, drove him out of Nazareth, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built, the precipice, in order to throw him off the cliff. And in verse 30, but he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. He was rejected in his own hometown, but it wasn't his time, was it? It seems like Jesus was born for rejection. John MacArthur describes him as born to die. 
even in his own town, he is rejected. And um, this involvement of Joseph and Mary was not just about the birth of Jesus that we often talk about at Christmas, but the planned life of Jesus in his development. It was about him being cared for and nurtured in order for him to fulfill the purpose of God. As parents, we have this responsibility to care for and nurture children who have a God purpose labelled on their life. Did you get that? For parents, and it doesn't matter how old we are, if we're a parent in the building today or online today, our role is to bring children up and to continue to nurture them so that they will fulfil the purpose of God. The character of Joseph and Mary Whoa, wow, fulfilling God's purpose in their life so Jesus' purpose could be fulfilled in his life. Story, amazing. We know from the study of the geography, the tension in Jesus' life was about his mission to redeem where there was conflict all around him. I want to just quickly flow through this, but um, also pretty important when I talk about geography. About five kilometres from Nazareth was the Roman city of Sepphoris, which was being built during this time. And I want to emphasise the geography here. Five K away. And Josephus calls Sepphoris the ornament of all Galilee. It was Herod Antipas who chose this site in 4 BC as the capital of his government. It's a picture of his palace. It's a model of Herod Antipas' palace, five kilometres from where Jesus grew up, and his dad's a carpenter, etching out a living, a builder, we might say, who might have also been involved in stone, First century builders would have had a, uh, a high demand in the region around Sephoris. Joseph and later Jesus as a young man may have even potentially been employed there. Maybe, right? Just a maybe. But five kilometres from home would have made that extremely possible. But Joseph was a poor man. In Luke 2, we see that they went to the temple to dedicate Jesus and Mary had to offer a sacrifice for her purification. As it's written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. If we go back into the Levitical law, Leviticus 12 and 6, Mary needed to sacrifice a lamb. That was normal. But there's a disclaimer in Leviticus 12, 8, that if you're too poor to bring a lamb, then you should offer a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So we know Mary and Joseph were poor. Pretty normal in their day and in their community. And therefore, they're so much like us. So there's so much that we can take away this Christmas from the reality of the obedience of Joseph and Mary. Even as 
We know the ancestry is an important part, and we covered that a couple of weeks ago. The ancestry of Joseph in particular and Mary pointed perfectly through prophecy for their anointing for this purpose. He is of the line of David, King David. So that is also part of it. But don't miss the little, little but most important part. He was obedient to the call of God on his life. True? It doesn't matter what descendancy or heritage or ancestry he had without obedience, not going to happen. Okay? But as obedience placed the lineage and the perfection of God's call into being. Don't miss that. God wants his perfection outworked through our obedience. God chose these two people to be the parents of Jesus for a purpose. Quickly track back into Luke 1, 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured, the Lord is with you. It's the sixth month referred to in the pregnancy of Elizabeth. She's pregnant with John the Baptist. And notice the greeting that Gabriel gave to Mary. You are favoured by God. The other way to express this is that Mary was chosen. Isn't it great that each of us who had the breath of life of Jesus, the Spirit of God, the anointing of God, the entry of the Holy Spirit through conversion, the fact that God has his hand on us means we are chosen. Not because of who Mary was or who we are, but because God chose it to be so it was. The emphasis is always on God and his choice. The emphasis is on his sovereignty. It's not on Mary. The Lord is with you. Gabriel didn't say, may the Lord be with you. He said, the Lord is with you. And if we press on in the actual historical event of Gabriel visiting Mary, the next bit in Luke 1 is interesting. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favour with God. Pretty cool to be greeted by an angel. Or maybe a bit disarming. But the angel had a message for Mary. He let her know she has God's favour. And I want to declare in the midst of life and all the curveballs that it throws, in the midst of so many transitions in my personal life, so many things that have happened, if 
I know I have God's favour. I can handle any message. There it is. When I consider that what God calls me to is because God has favour, I can, I can go wherever he wants me to go. Think about that. In the context of life, in the, in the majestic and massive life that we all live, whatever God purposes, it's like I often use the illustration, sometimes life is like a big wide river and I can't swim, but I see a stepping stone and I've I got to have courage to step out and put myself on that stone and I'm not going to take another step. Oh, yes, I am. And I step onto another stone and I step onto another stone and one day I look back and I've crossed a river. One stone at a time. Because I can't see what's over the other side until I get there. I don't know the plan of God until I'm living in it. Joseph and Mary heard a message. They heard a calling. They believed in the calling, but they didn't know all the steps along the way. They just started living it. And it fulfilled the purpose of God in their life and in their son's life. I just want to get through to this bit. Gabriel tells Mary seven things about the baby she will have. I'll just read this. You'll conceive and give birth to a son and you'll call him Jesus and he'll be great and he'll be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So just a few things about this. He's human. In verse 31, he was born from Mary's immaculate conception but a normal birth. And he's the saviour. It's in his name. I said, Jesus, wow, powerful name in verse 31. Give him the name Jesus. And in translation, Jeshua, which means salvation. Yahweh is salvation. And from that we know he is the saviour. The very name of Jesus is the gospel. And he'll be great. The beginning of verse 32 He's announced as Gabriel without qualifier, right? Uh, Gabriel says this, he's going to be great. And in the Jewish understanding, uh, he's not very great or greater than something else. In the, in the Greek, as uh, he, that would have been understood in their translation, to be great without a qualifier is reserved for Yahweh alone, for God alone. So the statement to be, he will be great means he is God. He's the most high in verse 32. 
So to be called and known as the Son of the Most High, the Most High isn't the exclusive name for the one true God. It first came into use in Genesis 14 uh, when Son denotes equality with the Father. Jesus the Son is equal to God the Father and his throne. He inherits the throne. Second part of verse 32 refers to the throne of David. So many places in the Old Testament, the throne of King David will last forever. Uh, It'll take place at the second coming. His reign is forever. In verse 33, the, uh, the Christ, Jesus who is the Christ, will reign over the house of Jacob forever. The house of Jacob is another term for the nation of Israel. He's going to be Israel's last king. They don't need another king. It'll happen and be fulfilled also at the second coming. Forever is still happening and it's yet to happen. Now and in the future. I want to say to you, I pull that out of just those few verses. This is a lot for Mary to take in, isn't it? And yet she's obedient immediately. She responds with a very simple question. Um, How? (laughs) I haven't been with a man confirming Mary was a virgin. So her question was not a question of doubt, but a question of reason and inquiry. Reasonable question to ask. And in Luke one thirty-five, the angel answers, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Wow. And here's the seventh thing. He's born to die. Jesus came into the world with a strong purpose. This revelation is tied up in Jesus being named the Saviour. His purpose was to redeem people. He entered the world under the sacrificial system that required the sacrifice of animals and doves. But his birth was leading him directly to his sacrificial death. Christmas becomes Easter. We know Jesus was born to die. John MacArthur says it this way, the reason that Jesus Christ was born was to die. It greatly concerns me today that there are some who are always talking about the fact that Jesus was a wonderful person who through a set of circumstances got himself into a mess and wound up getting crucified. And MacArthur says, the word of God clearly tells us that Jesus Christ was never trapped, never tricked, never surprised, never a victim. He went to the cross of his own design of his own will because he was born for that express purpose. Christmas becomes Easter in the biblical narrative. So be it, because it's the plan of God. And I love how Mary and Joseph respond to the message or this revelation of their future. I want to stress again, our responses speak so much 
into how we are called. If we are respondents, God calls us. You know, tested with a little, given a much. Luke 1, 38, Mary says, I'm the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the, the angel left her. If we go back to the Greek for some pretty rich meaning, maidservant was the lowest form of a female slave. The original, uh, the Lord's servant, Mary says, I'm the Lord's maidservant. Submissive. And Mary said, is this how we respond when God calls us? We respond like Mary. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Saviour, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his maidservant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. And I don't want to put this out the wrong way, but I found this quote and I'm, I'm just going to put it, I'll say it, God does extraordinary things with ordinary people. I don't think Mary was ordinary. I'd rather say she's pretty normal. <laughs> so today, why Mary and Joseph? Well, why not? God knew. And when we follow God's purpose, the why not? Why wouldn't I follow God? Why wouldn't I trust him where he's calling me? Because he alone is God. So Mary rejoices in her calling. How do you respond? God chose Mary for the awesome task of being the mother of Jesus. Can God gets the glory? Mary immediately pointed glory to God. Look at 1 Corinthians. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. God calls out normal people to do extraordinary things. If you're a Christian here today, God has called you. Have you surrendered to his will? No matter how big or small it is in our eyes, God's will is big for you in his eyes. Are you willing to have your whole world turned upside down to follow Jesus? It's all about him. 